1 Timothy chapter 3, 14. I'm writing these, writing these things to you, hoping to come to see you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Would you bow with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, as we've already said this morning, that you have revealed yourself to us. The unknowable has become knowable, not in full, but enough. Enough that we can know what it means for us to be sinners and we can know enough to be redeemed from our sin in Jesus Christ. You have revealed yourself enough to us so that we might be satisfied, content, sanctified, made holy. Everything we need, the scriptures say, for life and godliness is revealed to us in this word and in our Savior. And might we find joy in that and delight in it this morning? Might we be sanctified in it, conformed by it? And might we be reminded again this morning of the essential nature of the gospel, the critical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to save us individually, but to provide a guidance and direction for what ministry in the church looks like. And might we be steadfast in that gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. After his death, a documentary entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor, chronicled the life of the one who was seemingly everyone's neighbor, Mr. Rogers. In the film, Rogers' wife Joanne reveals a question that he asked her shortly before his death. Perhaps just days before his death, he asked this short question, Am I a sheep? As he approached the last moments of his time on earth, he was uncertain of his spiritual condition entering eternity. The film entertains the dominant idea about how it is that one gets to heaven. That is, that good people go to heaven and bad people don't, quote-unquote. And Joanne recalls what she said to her dying husband because of that reality. If anyone is a sheep, you are. I have no idea about his relationship with Jesus Christ. But isn't it sad that someone who was trained in seminary to become a pastor and then was ordained in the Presbyterian Church as a pastor doesn't know how one can be certain that he is a sheep and follower of Jesus Christ. John says that that was the very reason he wrote his first letter, chapter 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. The readers of John's letter can know. We can know 
Anyone can know that they belong to Jesus Christ and have assurance of eternal life. But like Fred Rogers, many do not. Many are on the precipice of eternity and they do not know. That sobering reality and a brief section in Paul's letter to Timothy remind us of the importance of the gospel message. We have multiple opportunities and multiple priorities as individuals and as a church. And we want to do all the things that God has called us to do with excellence and to do them well and to get the right things right. And of all those things that we do, getting the gospel right may be among the greatest of those in significance. It is eternally critical that we get the gospel right and that we stand on the gospel and that we not waver on the gospel, that we not move away from the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3 of that same chapter that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance. If you don't get that right, you don't get anything else right. It's of first importance and first priority. And here in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that we preach the singular gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing else. As we're thinking this year about being steadfast and immovable and not wandering away and not not replacing essential things with secondary things and remaining steadfast and persevering in the things that are of most importance. This morning, what we will find in this passage is the simple reality. Be steadfast in the gospel. Be steadfast in the gospel. Because Paul is writing to Timothy, his beloved disciple, they had undoubtedly talked about these things. The reality that he unfolds in this chapter, in this section, is not something that is new to Timothy, we don't think. It would be unimaginable that Paul sent Timothy off to be the pastor of the Ephesian church and forgot to tell him, oh, by the way, the gospel's priority. No, they'd, they'd had this discussion. And as Paul sends this letter, he's not just writing to Timothy, his disciple, but he's He's writing to all of the leaders of the Ephesian church and ultimately to the Ephesian church itself and reminding them, don't be enticed by temptations to move away from the gospel. There will always be things that will attempt to supplant and usurp and take over the gospel. Don't move away. Be steadfast. And Paul will remind Timothy and us of three aspects of the gospel that demand our steadfastness, three aspects of the gospel on which we must stand, three aspects of the gospel in which we must not waver, we must not move away from. The first of these is given to us in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. Be steadfast in the purpose for the gospel. Be steadfast in the purpose for the gospel. That is, the gospel has an end. It has a goal. has an intention. It has a purpose. And that purpose is to guide and direct the conduct of individuals, certainly, but not just individuals, but of the church. And Paul is saying, as you think about the gospel, don't forget about the purpose for how it's going to guide the church, direct the church, and give instruction to how the church is to function and operate. And as Paul is writing this, again, just a reminder, he's writing to his beloved disciple, Timothy. There's a unique relationship that 
was struck up between Paul and Timothy. We find it recounted for us in Acts chapter 16. Paul showed up in Lystra and then in Derby. It was probably in Lystra that he met Timothy. Timothy was uh, the son of mother and grandmother who believed in Jesus Christ and followed Jesus Christ well. They were devoted followers of Christ, though his father was not. His father was a rejecter of Jesus Christ. And yet even as a young man in that church in Lystra, Timothy had a good reputation. And so he was marked out as one who was particularly a follower of Christ and exemplified Christ. And as Paul spent time in that church and observed Timothy, he said, I want that young man to go with me. And so he asked his mother and grandmother, will, will he be able to go with me? Can he go with me? And, and indeed he was able and he did go with him and Paul did disciple him and train him. Ultimately, he would leave him in the Ephesian church. We find that in chapter 1 of this letter. And now Paul is writing as a follow-up. You're there, you're pastoring, you're leading, you're guiding, you're directing, you're functioning in the context of the church. Make sure you get it right. And this letter is a reminder to him about what a church should be and what a church should do. What's the priority? And in verse 14, Paul tells us that he wants to go to Ephesus and say this in person. Now, I think, I think Paul has in mind something that the Apostle John has in mind, both in 2nd and 3rd John. John says, I have more to say to you, but I'm not going to write it until I come to, see, come to you and see you face to face. And Paul says, I really want to say this in person because it's really of vital importance. It's, it's, it's essential. But he's aware that he might not get there. In fact, when he says, in case I am delayed, it's actually stronger than that. It's, it has the sense of, I'm probably going to be delayed. And the message can't be delayed. And so I'm going to write this to you so that, so that you will get the message. In fact, we really don't know whether he was able to make it to Ephesus or not. There's no record historically of where, whether or not he made it. And so he writes these things. I'm writing these things. I'm writing these things. Perhaps he's referring back to the first three chapters about corporate worship and what leadership within the church looks like. I think that's certainly in mind. Perhaps he's thinking about the gospel, everything he's going to talk about in verses 14 to 16. But I think actually he's, he's thinking about the whole letter. Everything I'm writing you is essential for you to know as, as you function in the church. Notice he says, Verse 15, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know. He wanted Paul, or excuse me, he wanted Timothy and he wanted the elders to know and to understand this. It has the force of, you gotta know this. You gotta know it. There's a tone of urgency. Don't, don't overlook this. Don't forget this. He might be delayed, but his message could not be delayed. And specifically in verse 15, as he begins this thought, he wants them to know, notice the middle of the verse, how one ought to conduct himself. Like a parent who's left their children at home for the very first time. And before cell phones, when he could do the find my thing and find out how things are going, if everybody's where they're supposed to be. And he can't call and text and see how things are going. He's just got to know what's going on and how are they doing. And as he as he writes them, 
Notice he says there is a, a necessity to this how one ought to act. That word ought is a word of necessity. It's a word of importance. It's, it's a critical word. It's a word that denotes this is a non-negotiable. You got to do this. It's the last instructions as the parents leave in the home and say, don't forget. And that's Paul's word here. Don't forget. It's not just you got to know this, but it's you got to do this. That the gospel not only affects your mind, but your gospel affects what you do. The gospel influences and affects everything that you do. The gospel and its overflow into our actions are not optional for the believer. There's there's a criticalness to it. And not just for the believer individually, but for the believer corporately in the body of Christ. So again, he's writing and saying there's a, there's a kind of conduct that ought to take place. He's not just thinking about individual conduct. He's thinking about corporate conduct. Because of the gospel, this is what the church will be like. And notice he says how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. He could have said church. In fact, he will in just a moment say church, right? What's the household of God? That's the church. He says that. He could have just bypassed that little line and said the church and he wouldn't have had to explain himself. But he reminds us that the church is not just an entity. It's not just an organism. It's not just an organization. It's family. And so when we gather together, we're not just relating to one another as as separate kinds of people, but we're relating to one another as fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and siblings in Christ, there's congeniality and familiarity within the church. We relate to one another. And we relate to one another in a particular kind of way. So our conduct as we function in the body of Christ reflects the transforming work of the gospel. What, what are the kinds of things that Paul's thinking about? Well, he's already told us In this letter, a number of things that the gospel does. Just think about his own life. Chapter 1. I think verse 12. Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. So that's what I was without Christ. And yet with Christ, I am faithful, verse 12. And notice the middle of verse 13. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So so the gospel has transformed not just Paul, but Paul as the apostle made him who was a persecutor of the church, an apostle of the church, one who attempted to destroy the church, one who became a planter of the church, a builder of the church, not just of a particular local church, but the church at large. This is, this is gospel work. The gospel informs how the church worships and prays. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. He's not talking about individuals here. He's talking about corporate worship. This is what we do in corporate worship. And then all the way through that opening section of chapter 2. 
the gospel directs how women in the body dress and live. That's the middle part of chapter 2. The gospel instructs leaders about how they are to live and to lead. That's chapter 3. The gospel directs how we eat, how we care for our spouses. That's chapter 4, verse 3. And so the gospel he's pointing to us is, is this transformative uh, this transformative message that not only changes individually but corporately, it changes our functions and our relationships within the body of Christ. And that reality is why we hold fast to the gospel. It's why we start with the gospel in counseling. It's why we start with the gospel in discipleship. It's why we start with the gospel in member church membership. It's why we start with the gospel in leadership. Because there is no other means for people to change and there's no other means for the church to operate apart from the gospel. It's foundational. It's central to everything we do and everything we are. When you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel changes you in dramatic ways. So it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 As they observed the, the excuse me as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and That's an interesting phrase because if you go to the gospel of Mark Mark chapter 3 it says that Jesus called the disciples so that they would be with him And as the world looks at the early church, they said they've been with him. They've been transformed and they've been changed. And that certainly has happened at an individual level. And you've seen that as well. You've looked at people and you look at one another and say, brother, God's done an amazing work in your life. I'm astounded by the transformation I've seen in you. That's the. It's the gospel at work. I praise God for the gospel in your life. But it's true corporately as well. The church body changes and matures. The church body reflects the character of Christ. You walk into a church sometimes and you say, Christ is here. This is a church body that has been with Jesus. And you walk into other places and you go, I wonder if they even know the name of Jesus. You've had this experience You've gone to a wedding or a funeral as I have and and you've seen people who are desperate to hear the message of Christ. I remember going to a funeral years ago, a young child that died in a very tragic way and I walked in and from the time I walked in until the time I walked out, the word of Jesus, the name of Jesus was not mentioned once. Here's a family that's struggling and suffering How can you not mention Jesus? How can you not mention the gospel? You walk into churches and you say, Jesus is here. That's why we're steadfast on the gospel. Because it changes not just how we're going to act individually, but as a church. Secondly, be steadfast because of the position that comes from the gospel. That is our position within the body of Christ the creation of the church. Now, through the gospel, we have all kinds of benefits. We have forgiveness and we have access to the Father. We have the intercessory work of the Son. We have the 
intercessory work of the Spirit. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have spiritual gifts and spiritual fruits and and connection. We have all kinds of gifts and privileges that come to us through the gospel, dozens of them. But one that we tend to overlook at times is our position in the church body. Notice what the Apostle Paul says I'm writing so that you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So we would say that we have been given this gift by the Spirit of God, who's not only united us individually to Christ, but united us to one another in this one entity, this one bride of Christ called the church. That's where we've been positioned. I think a lot of you are probably, like me, members of other kinds of organizations, other kinds of affiliations that you have. You have business affiliations and political parties that you support and political organizations in which you involve yourself and civic services in which you engage and even other religious organizations. But there is something particularly unique about this organism, not just an organization, but a living body, an organism that Paul here calls the church. And what makes it unique, notice, is how he identifies it. It is not just the church, the gathering together of God's people, but it is the church of the living God. The church is gathered with Christ as its head to belong to God who is alive. He is eternal king in heaven. He is alive today. He was alive yesterday. He will be alive tomorrow. He will ever be alive. He ever has been alive. He is the uncreated creator of all things. He is sovereign, working, changing all things according to his purposes and at the same time unchanging in his own nature. He is transcendent and above all things, and yet He has made Himself known. He is beyond space and time, and yet He has made Himself known in space and time and operates within the framework of space and time. Brothers and sisters, the one we serve as a living God, He is no idol. In fact, that's been Paul's thesis, not just here, but all throughout his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 concerning things sacrificed to idols. What do we do about this food that's being given to idols? Can we eat it or not? I mean, it's half price at the market. Can we get it for half price and eat it? Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this is amazing. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. The one we serve is living. You know, the idols, it's not just that they're dead. They're inanimate. It's a brick. It's a stone. It's a TV set. It's a book. It's, it's inanimate. 
It's, it's not only not alive, it has never been alive. It has no capacity for life. And Paul says, we serve a living God. The gospel has transformed us from idol worshipers to God worshipers. But even more than that, those who belong to God are made part of his family. We're, we're, in, we're, not, we're, we're in a household, but it's not just a household. It's the household. The household that is supreme and above all other households. The, the household of God, Father and Son, invite us into Trinitarian fellowship with Him as His adopted sons. Betrothed to the great Son, Jesus Christ, the triune member of the Godhead. We're made part of His family. We don't just... Hear this. We don't just worship from the outside. We are brought into fellowship and we worship him from inside the family. We're made intimate, treasured family members. We are for him. Paul's told us our identity. We belong to the living God. That's who we are. But he's not just given us our identity. Notice as well in verse 15, he's given us our function. What do we do? We are part of the church of the living God. That is, we are the pillar and support of the truth. We support, uphold, proclaim, lift up, stand on, don't deviate from The truth. Those words pillar and support are being used synonymously and they they picture the same kind of thing. What's interesting is that word support is the noun form of the same word that we get that is an adjective in First Corinthians 1558. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. When he says support, he's thinking, be steadfast, stand up, don't deviate. That image of a pillar and support would have been particularly significant for Timothy and the Ephesians because Ephesus, of course, was the location of the great temple of Diana, an idol, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I am told that that temple contained 127 pillars. Each of them was a gift from the king. Each of them was made out of marble. And many of them were studded with various precious jewels and overlaid with gold. They were, they were dynamic and brilliant and impressive. They were, we would say they were a sight to behold. They were majestic in their beauty. But they were false. In their proclamation. In contrast, the church constantly upholds the truth of the God who is the one living God. The temple of Diana was a testament to a dead idol. The, te- the church is a testament to the one and only living God. And what we uphold and what we don't deviate from and what we don't walk away from and what we continually proclaim, Paul says, end of verse 15, is the truth. What do we, what do we uphold? 
as the truth. I think the Apostle Paul here is not just talking about truth in general, not just biblical truth, though that is certainly true that that's what we do. I think he is thinking in a very particular way about gospel truth. That we don't deviate, we don't walk away from the gospel. And why do I say that? If you're on 315, just glance over to the other side of the page or perhaps turn it one page backwards to chapter 2, start in verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there he is equating a knowledge of the truth to salvation. So we get salvation by knowing the truth. There's no movement to salvation without knowing the truth. What truth moves you to salvation? The truth of the gospel, which he then unfolds in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony that was given at the appropriate time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He is obviously talking all through this section about the truth as it relates to the gospel. And I think in a similar way in verse 15 of chapter 3, he's taking that same concept of truth and he's connected it to the gospel. And in fact, in verse 16, again, he's going to articulate what the gospel is. We uphold the truth. What truth, Paul? The truth about Jesus Christ and what he has come to do and say. Why do we do this? Why are we rooted on the gospel? Why are we persevering with the gospel? Why do we stand on the gospel? Why is Paul so concerned about the gospel? Because... There will always be those who attempt to undermine, move away from, distract from the truth of the gospel. Just in this book, we find in Paul's day and in Ephesus that there were, there were false teachers. That's chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 6. There were blasphemers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. How'd you like to get your name in the Bible? Oh yeah, how'd you like to get your name in the Bible as a blasphemer? No, thank you. That's their reputation. There are apostate people who have seared their consciences. That's chapter 4 and 5. There are legalists who are attempting to gain the favor of God by their activity and what they don't do rather than by appealing to to God. That's chapter 4. There are licentious living people. That's chapter 5. There are divisive men in the body of Christ attempting to move people away from the true gospel. That's chapter 6. As Paul thinks about this young pastor in this influential church, this critical church, he's just seeing attacks from all over the place. Don't move away from the gospel and understand that there are going to be all kinds of attempts to move you away from the gospel to say, yeah, 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 the gospel. But let me tell you something that really works. That was Paul's day. What about our day? You're right, it's worse. False teachers, just like Paul's day. Teachers who teach error, promote ungodly living. One man with an unfortunately significant ministry graduated from my seminary, where I graduated from, has said this. 
Faith in Jesus in the biblical sense is not faith that he existed. Listen, it is not faith that he was born of a virgin. It is not faith that he is God. It is not faith that he died on the cross for our sins. It is not faith that he rose from the dead. What is it then? Saving faith is a faith that all who believe in him have everlasting life which cannot be lost. Until one believes the saving message, he is not yet irrevocably saved. In other words, you've got to believe in something about Jesus, but don't believe in him as the eternal God. Don't believe in him as the one who is who is um, perfect in all that he has done and fulfilled the law of righteousness. Don't think of the one, him as the one who has been put to the cross to die for your sins. Don't think of him as the one who has resurrected and ascended to heaven. Don't think about those things. Those are not essential. Just believe in him. Just what are you believing in him? And there are churches, I dare say, in this community, I know in the Metroplex, and I know the names, that believe that very thing. Believe in Jesus, but you don't need to believe the gospel. It's heresy, friends, and it's sending people to hell. In our day, they're not just false teachers. There are there are apostate people. The current buzzword is deconstructors of the faith. I think that sounds better than apostate Reprobate, thank you. They're people who are leaving Christ. And they're leaving the church. And and you don't have to look very far. I've got numerous books in my library now about those who are deconstructing the faith. And it seems like virtually every week I'm finding articles on on the internet about deconstructors. Here's what one deconstructor, quote unquote, says. Part of my deconstruction has included no longer following opinions or expectations of others to determine my self-worth, my choices, or my identity. I no longer look to anyone else to define me. Not God, not people. I am my own person. End quote. In other words, I am God. And I am the determiner of my faith. Augustine dealt with this almost two millennia ago in the third century. If you believe what you like about the light, excuse me, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And that is becoming pervasive among those who are, were in the church. There are churches who diminish the gospel and appeal to man-centered approaches of ministry. There are people who live licentiously, advocating freedom in Christ and liberty and engage in various activities that Scripture repeatedly affirms as enslavement and bondage and not freedom. I'd give you examples, but honestly, brothers, I don't want to talk about it because Paul says we shouldn't talk about it. There are people of the Christ and persuasion, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, Christ in politics, Christ in business, Christ in health, Christ in wealth, Christ in diets, Christ in self-care, Christ in prosperity, Christ and just not Christ alone. I'll take Christ as long as I get this other thing too, but if it's just Christ alone, I don't want it. And Paul anticipated that these kinds of things would come in his second letter to Timothy, the last letter that he would pen. 
he writes this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, don't want to deny God entirely, though they have denied its power. What did they deny? The gospel. Avoid such men as these. The God of this world is relentless on his attack against the gospel. And if we will thrive individually or corporately, then we will be steadfast on the gospel. We cannot, we must not, we will not be moved from the gospel. There's one gospel, one truth by which man must be saved. It's to believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, coming again. Says one commentator, if the church does not propagate and protect the gospel, who will The church is a place of warmth and belonging. We belong to the household of God. It is a place alive with the presence of God. It is the church of the living God. It is a place of proclamation and instruction, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is to be a place of belonging, abounding and believing. If we don't proclaim the gospel, who will? And so, Grace Bible Church, we're going to be upholding, being steadfast, Unmoved away from the gospel. And I get it. It's not popular. It's not the buzzword. It's not the way to grow a church. I know that. We're not here to grow a church. We're here to be faithful to Christ. To honor Him. To exalt Him. You know, um, something of what we are. As we think about the gospel, let me just reaffirm then when we say we are committed to the gospel, we are steadfast to the gospel, we mean at least three things. One is, when we say we are committed to the gospel, it's going to be the foundation of our ministry of the church. It's what we do. We start with the gospel, and the gospel is going to pervade everything that we do. You know our church mission statement, right? Shepherding God's people by God's grace for God's glory. We take care of God's people, right? We We invest in people, and we... We pour our lives into people. We give sacrificially for people. We nurture and we care. And as we do that, we're thinking about two things in particular. And one of them is obvious. When we think about shepherding God's people, we're thinking about maturing the believer in the grace of Christ. We want to we see believers grow in Christ and mature in Christ and become more like Jesus Christ. That's what shepherding means. We want to help you look like your Savior. But there's something that precedes that. And it is this, that we have to first reach the unbeliever with the gospel of Christ. You can't mature and disciple someone in Christ if they're outside of Christ. So you've got to start with the gospel. So when we say shepherding, we're not just thinking internal. We're thinking external as well. We've got to pour our lives into the community and see people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Because of that, we're not only committed to the gospel being the foundation of our church, we're committed to training with the gospel and proclaiming the gospel personally. 
And so we want to equip and train and disciple so that you know the gospel, so that as you go out into the community, as you rub shoulders with people that you know and family members and people at the grocery store and the hardware store and people that are coming to service things at your house, people that you work with, that you know the gospel. And when they say, I have no hope, you can say, let me point you to the hope of Jesus Christ. We're committed to that personally and corporately. And then thirdly, we're committed to praying the gospel for unbelievers. The elders, I put together a prayer sheet for the elders every week, kind of update things. And there's a, a, a significant section on that prayer sheet which, with, with your names and the family members that you have who don't know Jesus Christ. And we pray for those people. And you, we, we all have them. I would, I would say, if you have an unbelieving family member, raise your hand. Every hand would go up, including ours. And we, we got a, Regine got a text from a family member this week that is terrified about an illness in the family. And they don't know Christ. What else are we going to do? We appeal to the gospel. We point people to the gospel. Because that's our position as a church. That's what a church does. We uphold the gospel and say this is life and this is hope. There is nothing else. One last priority of the gospel is given in verse 16. Be steadfast with the proclamation of the gospel. In verse 15, the apostle, I believe, has told us to Maintain our position as those who stand on the gospel and don't deviate from the gospel and don't wander away from the gospel. In verse 16, he tells us something of the mystery of godliness. That is, this, this mystery is not something that's hidden, but it is something that used to be hidden. Now it's revealed, and it is the mystery, the thing that is revealed about what it means to be godly. In other words, how do you come to be godly? Well, how you come to be godly is by believing in the gospel and then growing in the gospel. And that's what he reveals for us in the remainder of verse 16. This great confession, and I think what he gives us in verse 16 is a confession, or we might say a hymn, and I think it's not just a hymn, something that they sang in corporate worship, but probably a partial hymn. I don't think it's the whole thing, but he quotes from it here some of the essential parts of that hymn so that they would remember the totality of it. What is revealed to us in this hymn about the gospel? First of all, it reveals to us the nature of Jesus Christ. And we find that in verses, excuse me, in lines one and two. He who was revealed in the flesh, that is Jesus Christ, who was eternal in the heavens and then moved out of the heavens and was revealed to be a genuine man, a a real man existing literally on this earth as a real man, enduring all typical temptations and burdens of manhood. He was genuine man, flesh of flesh. But not only was he a genuine man, notice the second line, he was vindicated in the spirit. Some of your versions may have a capital S spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. Some of your versions may have a small s, lowercase spirit, referring to the inner man of Jesus. It's widely debated what 
is meant in the hymn and what is meant by the Apostle Paul, my supposition is that he is referring to small s, inner man, inner man of Christ. So Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that's the outer man, and he was vindicated by the expression of his inner man. So as we looked at what Jesus was by nature, he is vindicated to be absolutely righteous, absolutely true, fully God. Not only fully man, but fully God as well. That's the nature of Christ. That's what we proclaim. We also proclaim, lines 3 and 6, the work of Christ. Notice what he says, line 3. He is seen by the angels. I think part of what he has in mind here is what the Apostle Peter talks about in his first letter in chapter 1, where he says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. I, this is this is not genuine. This is not in the text, but this is kind of the image that's in my mind. It's, it's like if, if they could, the angels were looking over the edge of heaven to earth and watching Jesus. They want to know the one who was eternal with the Godhead, in the Godhead, part of the Godhead, took on flesh and left us. What in the world is going on? We want to see. It's like your three-year-old. I want to see. What were they watching? They weren't just watching, were they? They were participating in some of it. They participated in his incarnation. Who were the ones that were singing in the heavens to the shepherds? It's the angels. Who's the one that was, who were the ones who were at the tomb that were directing people as they're coming and going from the tomb of the resurrected Christ? It was the angels. As the disciples are watching Jesus go up into heaven and he's disappeared from their view and they're still looking and they're still looking. Who's there to redirect their gaze? The angels. Angels weren't just looking from heaven. They were participating and they were watching. Notice this. While it's not said by the hymn, it is certainly implied. It's not just that they were watching. What is important is what they were watching. And what they were watching was the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what we proclaim. We also proclaim line six that he was taken up in glory. Some commentators, multiple commentators have drawn attention to the fact that as you read through this hymn, you don't find anything about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they're right. There's nothing directly said about the the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we do have this. He's taken up into glory. What's that? That's the ascension. And on what basis can Christ go back into glory? God is satisfied with him. In what way is God satisfied with him? He is satisfied that he's lived a righteous life. He is not engaged in any sin. He is appropriately appropriated for the sin of mankind. And he has the right to not only ascend into heaven, but to sit at his right hand as co-regent of heaven and all things. You think the death and resurrection of Christ is implied? Oh, yeah. When he says taken up into glory, he has in mind everything that Christ did was approved of by God, was reckoned by God to be satisfying to him. It is enough. 
The message of the gospel is a message of Christ's nature and Christ's work. That's what we declare, which takes us to lines four and five, the declaration of Christ. It is proclaimed among the the nations. What else are we going to go to say? What else is David Gibson going to go to Papua New Guinea with other than the gospel and the scriptures? Is he going to take some of our American technology and give it to them? Please don't. Is he going to take our, our, our wealth and our prosperity? Please don't. Those are things that, that don't enhance our lives. I think those are things that entangle our lives and distract us and move away from the simplicity of the gospel. What's he going to take? What you declare among the nations is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, coming again. He's proclaimed among the nations. What's notable here as well is that it's, it's the gospel for Jew and Gentile alike. It's the gospel that saves the Jews and it's the gospel that saves the Gentiles. We don't have time to look at it, but we find that pervasively in the New Testament. Romans 1, Romans 16, 16, 26 particularly. It's, it's the gospel of the Gentiles. Yes, it was a Jew that died. Yes, it was a Jew that came to fulfill the Jewish law. But yes, he also died for all men everywhere. So that all men everywhere might believe in him. And that's the other thing that we proclaim Line five, believed on in the world. He must be believed. We go and we appeal and we beg and we say, here's the gospel. Will you believe? You must believe. It's not enough to hear the gospel. It's not enough to be around gospel believing people. It's not enough to do good things. You must believe in Christ alone as your savior from sin and your hope of glory. There is nothing else. He must be believed. And that's what we're steadfast with. We're not moving. Oh, there's some things that I'm happy to move on. There are some things that I'm happy to change. I even can enjoy drums on occasion on Sunday morning. Astounding what God can do to transform us. Oh, but brothers, I'm not moving on the gospel. We have nothing else. We don't have the gospel. We don't have anything else. Verse 16 is revealed to us the nature of Jesus Christ. He's revealed and vindicated. He's revealed to us the work of Christ. He's been seen and taken up. It has reminded us of the importance of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. You might be here this morning and you still don't really understand the gospel. Let me give you two words, okay? If you're here this morning, you you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You must believe. It's your only hope. And when I say you must believe, I mean two things. One, you must repent. You must turn away from your sin. You must acknowledge that you are guilty of sin and you are helpless to save yourselves. Paul will say in chapter 6 of this letter, flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You must run away from your sin. You've got to say, I'm sick of my sin. I hate my sin. I don't want my sin. I can do nothing about my sin. I give up my sin. I don't want it. You must repent. Second word, you must believe. You must believe only Jesus can save you from your sin. Chapter 2, we've already read it. Let me remind you. 
God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the right time. He gave himself a ransom. He died in your place. He absorbed your guilt of sin. He makes available his righteousness to be imputed to you if you will but believe in him. And by believing, we simply mean I can't. I've got nothing. I can do nothing to save myself. I can't. God must. It's all about him. If you have not ever believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I compel you, believe today. It's the only message we have. It's the only message God has to save you. If you haven't believed, believe. And brothers and sisters, if you have believed, and many of you have, most of you have, if you have believed, stand on this truth. Don't waver. There's going to be all kinds of temptations that say, oh, it's okay. I mean, yeah, the gospel, yeah, but this is really good. No, no, no. It's the gospel. Remember the question at the beginning? Am I a sheep? There's a good answer to that question. And the answer is, who's your shepherd? And if your shepherd is Jesus, then you're a sheep and you're saved. That's our message. The Bible is steadfast and immovable on the message of the gospel. And as a church, we are steadfast, immovable on the gospel of Christ. Thank you, our Father, for the gospel of Christ, the salvation that comes through Christ, the reality of Christ. It's remarkable that the second member of the Trinity would deign to take on flesh. The one who was uncreated, perfect in glory, enjoying full fellowship with the Father and no need of anything, fully satisfied, completely fulfilled, took on manhood so that he could fulfill the law in every detail of what you demand And he could die not because he needed to die. But he could die because he wanted to die. So that he might redeem us. From our miserable state of sin. What a savior. And father is appropriate this morning as we have been thinking about the gospel to culminate. Our time of worship. In remembering Jesus Christ particularly at the table of communion. Thank you for this table. And as we approach this table, might we do so with purity. Not a purity of our own, but a purity that comes from Jesus Christ, our Savior. And might you be satisfied with Christ. Might we be as our as our substitute. Might we come having washed our lives in the robes of his righteousness and even cleansed familially those things that have intruded after our salvation, 
and that have impeded our fellowship, might those also be confessed to you and so that we can come in full assurance of faith and delight in you. We come to this table, our Father, to remember might our memory of him be fitting of him and fitting of the gospel that saved us. We pray in his name. Amen.